Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 28th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, let's start things off with a, a fun story. I saw this when I was out yesterday, and I actually immediately texted Brad when I saw this. Uh, they're coming out with a Ghostbusters proton pack. Brad, tell us about this. Yes, indeed. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Hasbro has this big crowdfunding collectible initiative called HasLab, and that's where they've been releasing these massive uh, kind of action figure playsets, vehicles, things that would normally be too expensive to make and send to stores for the worry that people wouldn't buy them because they're on the pricier end of toys and collectibles. And so they've done stuff like the Mandalorian's Razor Crest scaled to the vintage collection 3.75 inch figures. They made a huge Unicron Transformers figure. Uh, they did a, a giant Galactus for Marvel Legends. And now they've uh, leaned into prop replica territory by doing a Ghostbusters proton pack uh, modeled after how it appears in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, now, if you're worried that this, this doesn't like feel like it's going to be a Ghostbusters proton pack, like an original, the only real difference is that it's a little bit more weathered because it's meant to be older and it's Egon's proton pack from when he, you know, was, it was a Ghostbuster. So that's, that's a little bit, you know, of a change, but otherwise it will be equipped with sounds and lights that um, echo what we heard in the original Ghostbusters. And there's also a different set of sounds for what we hear in the new one. I'm sure that they try to keep a lot of the same uh, sounds and, and things like that, but they probably have maybe some new ones, maybe some modifications that were made to it or something like that. But uh, it's, it's, a life-size prop replica. It looks pretty cool. Um, it even has, like, you can open the bottom of it to see, like, the cyclotron inner workings and things like that. But the bad news is, is it's 400 bucks. Um, and so you, and you have to commit well, well, to- Well, that said, Brad, I've I've always wanted to own a Proton Pack, and I've oh, looked too. into how much it costs to, like, even build one. And it's in the thousands. For sure. It's expensive. It is expensive. And um, so this is, this is definitely cheaper, and it's very well made because it's- uh, 
modeled after. You know, they they scanned the the actual prop they used for the movie and everything, um, and it, it looks fantastic. But it's it's still very expensive, and you do have to commit to it because they have to meet a certain crowdfunding goal in order to actually um, make it. And so it's already halfway there. Um, they only need 7,000 backers to do it. The the slightly more bad news is that if you want the complete Ghostbusters package, you have to spend a little bit more money because the Neutrona wand is not included with a Proton Pack. That's actually sold separately. It's already available uh, for pre-order as another prop replica. Um, it is, again, Egon Spangler's Neutrona wand, and that costs $150. So What the about of- the pee tubes, Brad? Are those, so- <laughs> does, it, does it come with the urine tubes, or is that separate? Uh, yeah, the pee tube, I think you're going to be on your own. You probably have to make that yourself, maybe get a catheter or something. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, actually, sorry, I said 150, it's 125, uh, to pre-order on HasbroPulse.com. So when all is said and done, $525 to become a Ghostbuster, uh, I guess not too bad. <laughs> hmm. The, the other disappointing thing is even if you buy the, what is the wand called? Okay. Oh, it's, it's the gun. It's right. Like it's, it's the thing that you shoot. No, the ghost it's a Neutrona wand. Let's Neutron- be clear. Okay. Neutrona wand. Let's be clear. But, but even if you buy that, you don't have the, the thing that connects the wand to the backpack. Right. From, from what I can tell, the Neutrona wand works with the proton pack. That's what they said during the presentation. I don't know if like it, if, one or the other comes with the piece that would connect to it. But if it works together, I would imagine there's something that allows them to, to do that. So, well, I mean, this is cool. It's expensive. Uh, but you know what? Ghostbusters fans, I think are at, at this point, mostly adults that probably have jobs with, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. Um, in, in today's age, but like, you know, it, it's not like Ghostbusters fans are like all little kids. So this isn't like, you know, them charging $400 for, I don't even know what a little kid thing is these days. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it feels like adults have the disposable, uh, dis- disposable income to buy something like this. Brad, I guess the big question is, are you going to buy the Proton Pack? I would love to. I just don't think that I can afford it. It's it's very, very expensive. Um, and you know, this, uh, this is a job that's fun, but, uh, it's not necessarily one of the highest paying jobs in yeah. the country. So, uh, I just, yeah, I, I don't think I can justify spending that much money on something, even though it's, it is very, very cool. I have the Hasbro, the ghost trap mm-hmm. and I have that like on display on one of my shelves. It looks cool. The thing I like about the Hasbro stuff is from like a foot or two away, it looks like a real thing. Once you pick it up and you're like, oh, it's plastic. But, but it, like if, if you want a display piece, I, I feel like the, the Hasbro stuff is cool. And I also have a lot of the like the Star Wars Black Series helmets and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm wondering if they're going to do what they do with those where they will like, for instance, they they made a first order Stormtrooper helmet. And then they like because the expensive thing is like creating the mold for the helmet they start like doing different variations so do you think they will eventually actually release the ghostbusters proton pack from the original ghostbusters like weathered like the original ghostbusters um i think it's possible but i feel like since it's a Haslab project it's maybe yeah. less likely i feel like this because especially since they're including 1984 you know a 1984 like switch you can click to like make it make the sounds from the original movie and stuff like that so I would guess probably, yeah, I would guess probably not. 
Yeah. Uh, another thing that was announced this week for Ghostbusters was like a secret cinema event, but it's not one of those cool events that you actually go to. It's like going to be on the computer. Yeah, it's a little virtual thing, and uh, we don't really know much about it except it's it'll unfold th- through your computer, not like an Oculus VR thing or anything like that. Um, and you, it's uh, you have to have a webcam and headphones, and it'll be like very interactive. You'll be like walk through some kind of virtual environment with this all new Ghostbusters story that's set within the universe of the original movie. Um, there'll be live actors that are part of whatever the experience is. There's like ghost busting stuff. There's like games and puzzles and all this stuff involved with it. It's basically like they're trying to bring the secret cinema experience that happens in person to the virtual space. And like, this comes as a result of COVID, but also like something that they had wanted to try and dip their foot into to begin with. And they actually had to address this because a lot of people who like secret cinema events were like, thinking that this is going to be the beginning of the end of actual secret cinema events. But uh, like the CEO of the organization came out and said, no, like we, this is something that we've been wanting to do for a while. We want to try it out. We thought this was a good opportunity to do it. We still have live events that we're planning. There's, I mean, there's tickets for live events on sale, you know, right now. So, but uh, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see if how this works. It's, it's definitely way cheaper than a live uh, cinema, secret cinema event. It's only like 22 bucks if you're with a team or 2750 as an individual which you'll get teamed up with people from around the world. So, uh, you know, it might be worth checking out. I think I think I might give it a shot just to see what it's like. I do wish that it was a little more immersive as far as, like, I wish it was an Oculus thing, but, of course, that would limit, you know, who could be involved and it wouldn't be nearly as big of a deal. So, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to some more serious news. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about this accident on the set of Rust where a cinematographer... Helena Hutchins died uh, from a gun, a hot gun that was thought to be cold on the set of of, of Rust. And uh, we've been covering that on the podcast and on the site extensively. Uh, now, a, a LA City Councilman is introducing a – is trying to ban live guns and ammunition on film sets. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Councilman Paul Koretz introduced a resolution, um, basically, like you just said, trying to make sure that live guns and ammunition are not used on film and TV sets. He said, uh, while movies can be convincing and very realistic, they're supposed to be make-believe, a single gun accident, let alone a fatality like the one that occurred on the Rust set and the ones that killed Brandon Lee and John Eric Hexum can destroy the lives of not only the victims and their families, but the lives of other actors and crew who forever are burdened with the emotional trauma of avoidable accidents. Um, he talks about how uh, the clear solution to problems like these is, quote, banishing live guns and am- ammunition from the sets of television and motion picture productions to eliminate all possibility of human error in the handling of weapons so that flawless oversight and restrictions guarantee that these kinds of accidents never happen again. So basically, it boils down to a conversation that's been sort of swirling in the in the aftermath of this terrible accident, which is... Uh, is there any reason, any real concrete reason to actually have um, viable weapons on a, a film or television set, uh, especially in yeah, what, era? what is, what is the reason to have a real gun on set? I mean, I've seen a lot of people talking about this on Twitter, and I have not done like enough of a deep dive to ha- to be like super super well versed on both sides of this argument. Personally, I feel like we've gotten to the point where visual effects are good enough. Um, even for cheaper production, independent productions to be able to insert proper 
you know, muzzle flashes and, and things like that. I think from, and please, anybody who has heard any other reason, either of you two, please jump in here if you have anything. But one of the, the sort of primary things that I've seen brought up a couple times is the idea of if you're on a set and you're shooting blanks safely, uh, it still sounds like a real gun going off and therefore lends the scene a level of um, verisimilitude that that you just can't get from, uh, you know, inserting flashes in the gun in post-production or something. The, the actors on the set hear a noise that sounds like a gunshot and they react accordingly. There are little flinches. There are these sort of, um, you know, micro reactions that people have that sort of uh, add to the reality of of whatever scene they're trying to shoot. So I think maybe one of the the quote unquote arguments would be to to sort of um, you know keep those things intact. But I'm not sure if all of those little reactions spread across every piece of filmed entertainment that we have is worth a human life, you know, uh, if there were to be, uh, any, any more accidents, I just don't know if you can, if you can morally justify it at this point, um, considering that this happened in the year 2021, when, you know, things should be, you know, when we've talked about it before, but like there were all these, um, precautions put in place and it's just like a catastrophic failure all the way down the line. So if that line is not completely buttressed and, and protected, um, if there is a way to sneak through and for something tragic to happen, then maybe the, the line should just be cut altogether. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I can tell you, Ben, that 20 years ago when I was dipping my feet into filmmaking, the digital filmmaking world, I did some post-production muzzle flash stuff which I, I'm sure looks horrible if I were to look at it now. <laughs> yeah. But back then, everybody looked at it and thought it looked, they're like, did you ever, how did you pull that off? And I'm sure even then at that, like at the level of Hollywood could produce, like they could produce mm-hmm. like a realistic muzzle flash and post. And, you know, and Hollywood obviously could create a prop gun that has like an actual flashing device yeah. in it that would actually... Mm-hmm reverberate around the set so it gives a 3d uh flash and isn't just a composited flash onto the thing i i feel and like then also like uh the hand motion like the the kickback the recoil right the like kickback, you can yeah. you can digitally insert that you can manipulate there's all sorts of there's so much digital manipulation that goes on in mainstream movies that people don't know about i'm talking like face replacement stuff um split frames you know where like one half of one take uh, is used on one side of the screen and editors are able to, to marry that with a, a totally different type of, uh, a totally different take, like things that, you know, magic that we just don't know about as an audience. <laughs> um, so I think if they're there, if they have the, that kind of capability, they can, you know, digitally move somebody's hand back a little bit to make it seem like there's actual recoil there too. So I, I think that may be one of the other reasons that people might be uh, wanting to, to keep uh, you know, actual guns around on the set, but I, I don't know. I, I I would love to read like a um, an impassioned plea from a filmmaker who knows what they're talking about uh, t- as to why um, you know guns and, and ammunition like this should should not yeah. be. Let, let's get Joe Carnahan on the phone. I feel like he would be the <laughs> yeah, person to yeah, talk yeah. to. 
I, I don't know. I feel like we're in a world where people are talking to golf balls on sticks on a stage surrounded by green. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I love the the pitch that we need to like. I mean, I, I do get it that like if you had a gun in your hand, I've never shot a gun, but I imagine if I shot a real gun that like that sound and the kickback and whatever, it would be hard to like imitate the yeah sometimes directors like stand behind the camera and they can like uh play sound effects through speakers to the to the set so you could you could in theory kind of replicate the effect or somebody just like clapping really loud right behind somebody or you know something some sort of little uh sound that could then be just removed from the the final experience but yeah i just i don't know if that's if that's equivalent to the actual sound that comes out of a gun when it's when it's fired or if that reaction is is needed i don't know it also seems to me like hollywood could save money here <laughs> do you know I mean like you don't have to have an armor or what you know whatever those people are that are yeah. on set to like monitor this stuff like I, it doesn't seem like it would cost much more money to do this but um brad do you have any thoughts on this like uh, what what do you think about the future of using real guns on movie sets I mean, it just, it doesn't really seem necessary. I feel like there's got to be a way to where they can probably make a physical prop that has some kind of mechanical device in it that gives that kind of kickback. So that way you still have that tangible feeling of firing a gun for the actor, but you don't have to worry about the dangers that come along uh, with it, you know, by putting what could potentially be projectiles inside of it. There has to be a way, way to do that. I mean, prop makers can make all sorts of things work for movies and i feel like that's that's got to be possible you know so yeah something's got to be done though because it's like even though this is something that only happens like once in a blue moon like once is enough and like it just shouldn't be a concern at all yeah no one should be dying in making you know fake stories that we watch on a projected wall okay uh let's move on to bill murray who (laughs) bill murray like doesn't care about rules doesn't care about ndas uh, seems to have revealed in an interview that he is in a new Marvel movie. Brad, tell us about it. Yes, uh, apparently Bill Murray is in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Um, because Bill Murray doesn't really feel like he has to play by anybody's rules, he just casually mentioned it uh, while doing an interview with a, a German newspaper. Uh, he told them, and this is translated, so be, you know, be aware this might not necessarily be a uh, direct thing, but it's clear what he's saying. Uh, it says, quote, I recently made a Marvel movie. I probably can't tell you about it, but it doesn't matter. In any case, some people were quite surprised why I decided on such a project of all things. Uh, but for me, it was very clear. I got to know the director, and I really liked him a lot. He was funny, humble, everything you want from a director. And he even went on to cite uh, Bring It On as a movie that he thought, thought was so good and was one of the reasons that uh, he likes director Peyton Reed a lot. So uh, he took some kind of role in uh, the Ant-Man and the Wasp sequel that's coming up, but we don't know what. Uh, you know, it could be uh, a bit part, could be a, a key role. We're not entirely sure. Um, although, Peter, you found a very interesting Marvel connection that Bill Murray had that <laughs> I wasn't aware of, uh, but that Peyton, Peyton Reed posted about back in February, right? Yeah, uh, Peyton Reed in February tweeted this photo. It was a photo from Groundhog Day. He says, a pre-SNL Bill Murray played the Human Torch in the Fantastic Four radio show back in 1975. I was a fan. Years later at the Groundhog Day junket, he signed this for me. And it's a photo of Bill Murray's like uh, headshot from Groundhog Day. And it's signed um, Flame On, on the Human Torch. Yeah, that is... (laughs) 
so cool. Such an obscure thing. I, I want to see if the radio show is online somewhere to listen to it because that would be really cool to hear. But it's also funny that you posted this in February. It makes me wonder if at that time he was trying to get Bill Murray to be in the movie. And oh, no. Uh, but yeah, who could he be playing? Maybe he's I, playing I, the Human Torch. The Human yeah, Possibly. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like Bill Murray doesn't come on to sign on for just like some random role. The That's only exactly thing I can, what Bill Murray would do. Well, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, I was going to suggest Bob Wang, who is the, the father of Paul Rudd's char- character in the comic books. He, you know, l- like in the movie, he went mysteriously missing in action. And I don't think he ever like, ended up showing up in the comics he was like dead but i'm sold on that already like the idea of bill murray showing back up as scott lang's estranged father uh to paul rudd that sounds amazing yeah Yeah. no count me in i'm also wondering do you think we've heard these stories of how bill murray gets involved in these projects like you have to call this like 800 number and like leave a voicemail and maybe bill murray will like show up on set you don't know he doesn't sign this a contract you just like you just trust him at his work do you think he even signs an nda brad (laughs) i sincerely doubt it i mean maybe he does but like it probably it doesn't even matter you know because like they probably just know bill murray is gonna bill murray and yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay let's move to another story the wolfman movie starring ryan gosling has found a new director ben tell us about it yeah, so Lee Whannell, who directed Upgrade not too long ago, uh, was attached to direct a Wolfman movie starring Ryan Gosling for Universal and Blumhouse. But Whannell has left the project over scheduling conflicts, and now he's been replaced by a filmmaker named Derek C. in France, who directed uh, Ryan Gosling in Blue... What is it called? Blue uh, under Blue Valentine. Jeez, I wanted to say Blue Velvet, Blue Underground. There's so many different. Okay, Blue Valentine, and then he also directed him in um, The Place Beyond the Pines. Did you guys ever see that movie by any chance? I did not. From 2012, man, that's really good. It's like a really sprawling crime thriller. Um, Has Ryan Gosling and uh, Bradley Cooper in it, and uh, Ava Mendez, I think, if memory serves correctly. It's very, very good. So I would encourage people to check that movie out. But um, yeah, Cian France and and Gosling have a good working relationship. Like I mentioned, they've they've worked together a couple times before. Um, Gosling actually came up with the idea for this Wolfman movie and pitched it last year to the folks at Universal and Blumhouse, and they got on board. And then um, evidently, after Lee Winnell sort of split because of these scheduling projects or uh, problems, Gosling went straight to Derek Seinfeld and, and tried to convince him to make this movie, which is he's sort of an odd pick for a film like this because Derek Seinfeld doesn't really make big franchise <laughs> movies. Um, he's he's much more in like the last movie he directed was uh, this film from 2016 called The Light Between Oceans, which is a really really beautiful, gorgeous, um, I mean, unbelievably uh, picturesque picturesque romance that uh starred michael fassbender and alicia vikander um like the opposite of a franchise movie like as far as you can get you know in the other direction so um and and this would be his first appearance in that sort of sphere of filmmaking so he's in some ways a little bit of an unconventional choice but my hope is that this is an unconventional wolfman movie and something that um that sort of mixes things up a little bit so uh we don't really know details about what the the take is here um because gosling like pitched a version and then 
when Lee Manel came on board, he wrote a script. And now that Derek C. and France has come on board, C. and France is writing the script. So it sounds like they're just like starting from page one, you know, over and over again. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited and, and sort of uh, intrigued about this uh, collaboration here. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be a more modern, more grounded, dramatic version of Wolfman. Than we've gotten yeah, the, in the, past. the original pitch from Gosling was, quote, believed to be set in present times and in the vein of Jake Gyllenhaal's thriller Nightcrawler with an obvious supernatural twist. So I'm not sure how much of that original pitch is going to be retained in this final version, hopefully by Derek C. and France. But um, but yeah, that was the original idea. And you have to assume or I have to assume anyway, that uh, that there would be that if Gosling was the one who, who cooked up this idea in the first <laughs> place, that he would want to retain some of that as like the the face of this uh, probable franchise if this thing you know takes off in a big way yeah i just wonder what kind of modern take like we we had the invisible man was that right before the pandemic or was that in the beginning of the pandemic beginning of yeah and that had like an interesting like topical take on the property i wonder what this is other than it being you know maybe modern and grounded and dramatic but yeah, uh, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we've been talking about uh, Warner Brothers a lot lately. I, I think on the last news episode, you guys talked about Dune 2 being announced by Warner Brothers. They're actually making a sequel. And one of the sticking points, according to Deadline, was that the director did not want a day and date release on HBO Max. That's something that we got this year. <laughs> because we're in the middle of a pandemic uh, and Warner brothers finally relented agreeing that it, it should go theatrical. Uh, well, now we have learned that Warner, what Warner brothers is planning on doing with the future of their theatrical and HBO max slate. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah. They're all going to be released on the Apple watch. It's going to be the best <laughs> way to watch new movies on HBO max watch app. Uh, that's why Tim, uh, Chris Nolan left. Yeah. He was very upset. As he, sh- as he should be. Uh, no, so um, HBO Max, you know, this was kind of an uh, an experiment that they wanted to to try out. The pandemic offered a great excuse to to do it. And so, you know, uh, they, what they call Project Popcorn was releasing all of their big movies uh, to HBO Max and the theaters at the same time. That's not something that they're going to be doing um, in the future, at least not on this scale. But what they plan on doing instead is basically making 18 um uh, to 23 films like theatrically each calendar year like they normally did uh but what they're going to do is they're going to make 12 movies that will be exclusively theatrical releases that follow the normal release pattern of hitting theaters and then vod and then uh blu-ray and dvd and whatnot and then 12 original movies that will go to hbo max and may also uh play in theaters um but it sounds like what they're leaning more towards is uh not really doing any day and date releases, but just having a shorter theatrical window uh, for those bigger movies. So uh, it'll be a 45 day theatrical exclusive window rather than doing the 90 day window. So uh, a, mo- um, a movie like, you know, the Batman, when it comes along, will hit theaters, will be in theaters for about a month and a half. And then uh, the theatrical exclu- exclusive window will drop out and you'll see those movies, uh, you know, hit the, the home stretch. So smaller movies will go day and date? 
Uh, no, not well. I mean, if if it's a smaller movie, there's there may not be a theatrical release that goes along with it. It sounds like maybe most of those movies will be exclusively HBO Max and not do the day and date thing. Um, but I would I would bet that it probably depends on the movie and whether it's something that you know they want to qualify for awards or something like that. But if it is an award worthy movie, I'm betting it would probably be part of that that first category that just gets an exclusive uh, 45 day theatrical window. Yeah. I wonder what this means about movies like Batgirl and Blue Beetle and some of the other like DC stuff that they've said are supposed to be directly to HBO Max. Does that mean that the budgets on those movies is going to be significantly less than it would be for a theatrical thing? Because you would think that that the superhero, the DC of it all would mean that, that, that those movies would automatically get kicked up into the theatrical release category there. But I don't know. I'm betting that probably what they want to do for stuff like that is they probably want to have something that is big enough to draw more subscribers to HBO Max, but maybe something that they don't want to take a huge box office risk on by Mm. making a movie that is crazy expensive so that it needs to make so much at the theatrical box office. Um, So this way they're still putting out stuff that feels big, but it's not necessarily, you know, the same budget scale as their true tentpoles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mentioned Dune 2 earlier and, uh, you know, on our previous podcast where we did the Dune spoiler breakdown, uh, we were talking about, I, I think I actually brought it up that there, there's more than one Dune book. There's like a whole series of Dune books. And, you know, is this going to be the end? Is part two the conclusion of the story or will this franchise continue? And it sounds like we, it sounds, sounds like the director might be interested in doing more. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Denis Villeneuve was asked about this. Um, so there are six books in the Dune, uh, I guess, novel verse, the, the franchise, the written uh, franchise as it, as it stands right now. Uh, and the so Dune Part 2 has already been greenlit. The, the first book sequel is Dune Messiah. And it seems like that is a story that Denis Villeneuve also wants to adapt into movie form. So he said... Quote, I always envision three movies. It's not that I want to do a franchise, but this is Dune, and Dune is a huge story. In order to honor it, I think you would need at least three movies. That would be the dream. To follow Paul Atreides and his full arc would be nice. So I've, I've only read the first book, so I'm not sure exactly what happens in Dune Messiah, but it, it certainly sounds like there's more to Paul's story than what happens at the very, very end of the, this first Dune novel. So, yeah, I mean... On one hand, uh, I'm excited <laughs> about this because I liked Dune and, and Villeneuve created this incredibly immersive visual you know, spectacle that is just uh, unlike a lot of stuff that we've seen recently out of Hollywood. But on the other hand, I love Denis Villeneuve's movies and I just want to see him continue to expand his stuff as, as a storyteller and just like tell more, cra- I want more Sicarios and, and more enemies and, and all of, you know, prisoners, all the, all the movies that he's made, like, I want more of that kind of stuff too. So I, I, it's the same thing that always happens when yeah. like promising filmmakers get get pulled into Marvel and stuff. Like I, I'm curious. I liked Cop Car a lot. I want to I want to see what John Watts does outside of the Spider Man world. But he's got you know all these Spider Man movies and he's attached to direct Fantastic Four also. So it's just like you know it's a double edged sword. Yeah, well, it looks like he's going to be having his hands full for at least the next four or maybe five years if if they actually make a third one. Mm-hmm. But it also makes me wonder, like, how confident is he that he couldn't make Dune into one movie? <laughs> what makes him think he can make Dune Messiah into one movie? 
Yeah, I wonder if like, I, again, I, I have no insight whatsoever into what the story is, but I wonder if just it's like a lot of the groundwork has been laid for some of the concepts and the ideas and the locations and stuff like that. Maybe um, he spent so much time establishing the families and the houses and, and the political, you know, machinations and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I wonder if um, Messiah is just a simpler story that that would be more easily told over two hours or something but um oh i did just look this up so dune is 412 pages and dune messiah is 256 pages so it is a significantly smaller book but i'm guessing that's still like a three-hour movie (laughs) right (laughs) in in villeneuve's hands probably yes yeah so so there you go. Anyways, you can find more of all the stories you mentioned on today's podcast on SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please, read and read this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.